This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave Hanlon. That full name will be important in just a minute. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today, we sing one spell. With a distant light pierces the mist, we talk with someone who's putting surrealism into practice. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss inspirations for Invisible Sun games. In today's segment, we have an actual human being that we're going to talk to about collaboratively crafting a surreal story. So, without uh, further ado, we have another person here on our podcast, and why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Mike Hanlon. I am Dave's brother. That's correct. And he is also assuming that I'm a little bit of an authority on surrealism. And I guess later as we go through, I'll explain why. Although I hesitate to say that I'm, I'm too much of an expert. I'm not assuming that you're an authority. It's just that you have an interesting experience with putting together a surreal story that I thought was interesting. And I also thought it would be something that would apply to any sort of RPG group getting into a surreal fantasy RPG like Invisible Sun. I am a theater person, but uh, currently I'm a teacher as well. So a uh, drama teacher in high school, and that's where some of this experience you're referencing is going to be coming into play. We were talking last, like two weekends ago or so, and you had mentioned something about something that you were doing in one of your classes, and it's one of your drama classes, right? It is. And you're teaching high schoolers in that class. Yep. And what does this class, like, what are you doing in this class? What do you do? So the school that I teach in is a project-based school. So one of the main things to understand about the school generally is that we really try to encourage our, or structure our classes so that students are learning by doing the things that they're learning about. We're not just reading textbooks and learning about what came before, but in all the academic areas are really trying to learn in a, a disciplinary fashion, like I said, by actually doing the things that a mathematician would do or a, a, a scientist would do, or in my case, what a, a dramatist would do. So the specific mm -hmm. class we're talking about is my acting seminar. And the way that I've got that class structured these days for the past few years now, we spend about two weeks where the students get a long list of all sorts of different dramatic styles. I give that to them and then they have to do a little bit of just initial research, just enough to talk to each other about what all these different dramatic styles are like, what the history is, and just basic information to give them a taste of it. And from there, they present to each other and have some discussions and then we decide which dramatic style are you really interested in learning more about for the rest of this trimester? And this year I've got half the class is focused in on storytelling, uh, true personal stories, but then the other half of the class 
this year has picked up on doing surrealism. So that's why we've got this overlap in what you're working on right now and what I'm working on with the students. Now, the surrealism, is this something that they're going to be doing for the whole semester? The students that are working with surrealism will be doing that for the entire trimester. trimester. And it's geared in a way that rather than just picking up a play that somebody else has written already, I, which I did think about a little bit because I wasn't quite sure at first how to get them to write in a surrealist style. I think, mm -hmm. especially with some students that haven't written anything before, it's kind of a tall order to say, write something that's a, a surrealist uh, masterpiece, and then we're going to perform that later. So during this uh, trimester, we've spent time learning about what surrealism is, and then we worked on writing something that would fit in a surrealist style. And okay. at this point, they're rehearsing it, and we're going to be performing it next month. Uh, there's a youth art month that happens at our local art center, and we've got a time slot booked in the, the theater that we'll actually get to perform and present what they've been working on. So rolling this back to like how you get into surrealism, where did you where did you start? Did you find plays that are surrealist in nature? Like like what were you looking for there, and what did you find? It was difficult to try to figure out what the starting point on this was going to be because, like I said, I'm not, I don't have a large background in surrealism myself. Mm -hmm. And surrealism has overlap in drama. There are things that came out uh, when surrealism was first getting developed that, that worked as dramatic pieces, but there's not a lot of them. And there's not a lot that's easy to find as well. And there's also not a lot that's going to be, um, I think, really engaging for teenagers, for high school students mm -hmm. in, in this day and age. So I was wrestling with, how do I really make this approachable for them? And uh, one of the fun, exciting things about structuring the class this way is that it really does force me to learn about different dramatic styles myself. Um, I've got a lot of background doing uh, sketch comedy and some improv and not as much in like surrealism or expressionism and, and all the, the different isms that sort of came out at the same time. So I started looking at uh, just basic information about surrealism and trying to piece together ideas of what to do. I, I think the biggest dramatic piece that I remember reading about when I was doing university classes was uh, The Breasts of Tiresias. I don't know if I've that's I've never heard of it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's this wonderful uh, story about, and I'm going to get it backwards, but it is a woman named Teresa who uh, decides one day that she doesn't want to have her breasts anymore, so she like pulls them out, they're balloons, and they float away. And okay. they're not there anymore. And then she is uh, now Tiresias, who is the, the the seer from Oedipus the King. So he's the one that talks about all the, the omens and the, the terrible things that are supposed to happen to, to Oedipus from his past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. um, I, I honestly don't remember too much more about the play beyond just like that nutshell that I think happens within the first five minutes of the play. But it's not super engaging for uh, high school students. And I thought, well, we could start reading this, and it'll be really good for them to have an understanding. 
of what this stuff looked like when it was first coming out, but it, it just, I knew I needed a better hook than that, and I needed something that I would be really excited about as well. So as I was looking more at surrealism and, and what it means, um, I know that the this term came up in this, what you were researching as well, but the thing that really clicked with me was automatism. I think we've talked about that a little bit. Okay. So as I was doing my research, I saw that there are really sort of two strands of surrealism. One was that the dreamlike quality, all the stuff that seems like it almost makes sense, but it's just a little bit off, sort of like a dream is. Every There's a story, there's a narrative that's going, but you know maybe someone's breasts are going to turn into balloons and just fly away, and you have to kind of figure out what that means. Mm-hmm. And then the other thread of surrealism that I saw was something that came out of visual arts, which was the automatism, where they would start by just uh, sketching out or painting out random shapes um, and not thinking about it too much, not planning what it was going to be. And once they had gotten a significant amount onto the canvas, then they would go back and sort of uh, retcon it and decide, uh, this is what it means. Oh, this like boxy shape here. This is a horse, and uh, you know the other shape over here is maybe a tree. And the idea with that was to try and tap into the subconscious, to try and tap into that dreamlike state while you're still awake. And that was something that resonated with me because when I was doing theater in Milwaukee, I uh, ran a non-traditional theater troupe, and we had. Uh, a series of shows that we would do called Berserk. And um, what was the name of this troupe? Alamo Basement. We ran for about five years. Milwaukee, Madison, Chicago. It, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And it uh, gave me a lot of experience and just different things to, to play around with and experiment with. And I realized that there was one thing we were doing, which was the Berserk shows that kind of tapped into the same sort of thing because one of the guys that I uh, worked with, actually the guy that... that did the escape room with us just last week uh, did an escape room down in milwaukee and this we got stuck with uh random people that had to do the room with us and one of them ended up being this guy i hadn't seen in about 10 years it was just a weird coincidence it was uh, very strange wasn't it? it it was very strange <laughs> it was like walking into this room and running into somebody who you hadn't seen for so long it was would you say kind of like being in a dream um, a little bit, yeah. Actually, I would definitely say that. You know, saw him from behind at first and was just going to say hi to this schmo that was going to be locked in a room with us. And then he turns around and like, oh, my God, I know you. Uh, but anyway, that guy, while we were uh, doing some of our shows, gave this challenge. He said, hey, Mike, why don't we, instead of writing plays overnight and then performing them the next day, we did a lot of 24-hour theater. He said, what if we wrote plays in 10 minutes? I felt like, I don't know, that's kind of a, a fun idea, but that wouldn't really work. And I tried it just in my response to him. I wrote something out in 10 minutes. I timed it for myself. And I realized that, oh, actually, 10 minutes, if you're not second guessing it, if you're not going back and making changes, if you're not planning too much about what you want to be doing with it, you can write a short, very short play in 10 minutes and so just stream of consciousness yeah exactly very stream of consciousness and that's where it comes in 
to tie into automatism where mm -hmm. you're not doing things consciously. You are just typing madly as fast as you can until you have something out on the page. And when I was reading about that with a surrealist, I realized, oh, okay, this is something I could do with the students. Because I remember doing these shows in Milwaukee where we would put on between 15 and 20 of these in a given night. And it was a lot of fun. It was high energy. It was really weird. But every time we had a play that was like two lines long or 30 lines long, we would figure out how are we going to make this entertaining for the audience? How are we going to glean something out of this so it's not just nonsense on stage? And I can do that with these high school students now. Before we get into like uh, how you're running it with your kids, <laughs> so you, you touched on this very entertaining way that you were able to build out plays in in a short period of time by using stream of consciousness for your berserk series now how did you decide to sell surrealism to your high school students was it were you going to say like oh hey we should use this technique or did you explain what surrealism was and what its goals were and if there was anything else for them to know getting into it i personally didn't tell them too much about it when they did their peer presentations to each other. There were two mm -hmm. students that did the research on surrealism. Just, again, really brief research. They spent two days doing some of the research and putting a, a short presentation together. And then they do a gallery walk where everybody sets up around the room and then everyone walks around and you check out what the other people were talking about. And then afterwards we have a discussion. And every year students have been interested in something different. So in the past we've done uh, Commedia dell'arte, we've done Greek tragedy, we've done puppetry, we mm -hmm. did absurdism one year, which is, you know, close to surrealism, it has some some connections and some overlap, but it's, it's different. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, the kids really tapped into, I think, the dreamlike quality, the kids that had the presentation had some really nice paintings that they were presenting with like a whale in the sky and uh, at least one other one too. And that just appealed to them. And I always feel like whatever the kids are latching onto, uh, that's what we're going to run with. Because if they have the, the ability to make those decisions, they're going to be more invested in it when we start uh, reading and researching about mm -hmm. whatever topic it is. Okay, so the, the dreamlike imagery is what really hooked them in. I think that was the main part of it. Okay. Um, so this is something we were talking about uh, when we were you know, discussing this a couple weekends ago. Um, and I, I guess when I was doing my research into what surrealism is, I thought that there was something else that went along with surrealism. It wasn't just uh, dreamlike imagery. I thought that there was some sort of social message that the early surrealists were trying to push. Uh, does that sound familiar, Scott? One thing we talked about is that many of the techniques were motivated by a, a desire to... I guess, overcome the limitations of reason. And so uh, automatism, for instance, is a, try, is a way to try to create, but bypassing the conscious uh, mind that has been subverted and controlled through various social processes uh, and was suspect for that reason, the surrealists would argue. So if you could create subconsciously or automatically, you would bypass that part of your brain. The, as you're describing for the automa uh, automatism of writing, it also reminds me of the cut-up method uh, from Burroughs as a, as a writing technique where he would write 
long texts, but then he'd go back and more or less randomly uh, cut up different sections and paste them back together in different orders hmm. to see what emerges from the randomized reorganization of the text itself. I think you'll like what we ended up doing with the the script then, because I, I have heard about Burroughs doing that. I grew up listening to a lot of experimental music, industrial music, so I discovered Burroughs through Throbbing Gristle and Psychic TV and bands like that. So all that cut and paste really appealed to me. And uh, do you mind if I get into talking about what happened next with developing the script? Yeah, please do. Let's get into the meat of like, how are you, how are your students building this surreal script as a group? So uh, trying to use that automatism as our jumping off point, I spent uh, about a week and a half giving them different prompts every day. It would be a line of dialogue or a character or a piece of music. And then I would time it out for them. They'd have 10 minutes to write, just write something. It doesn't have to have a beginning. It doesn't have to have an end. It doesn't have to make a lot of sense. I just want you writing for 10 minutes. And especially for high school students, it's really important that they just have that experience of writing something. Mm -hmm. And we had a shared folder on uh, on Google Drive where whatever they wrote after 10 minutes, we would put it all into there. Uh, one of the first prompt we did, we actually tied it in with the dream uh, side of surrealism as well. So they had to describe a dream to someone else in class. And then they would uh, trade their dreams around. And then they had to write for 10 minutes about someone else's dream as though it was the script that they were writing. And after this period of time, this, this week and a half of just writing, we had, you know, probably around 40 or 50 just beginnings of scripts. And we would read through them every day after our 10 minutes is up, we'd read through as much as we possibly could. And then after we had amassed a whole lot of it, we went back and started to pick out, not necessarily like, which script do we like in here? Because none of them were great beginning to end, but almost all of them had bits and pieces that we really liked. Maybe it was a character name we really enjoyed, or maybe one line of dialogue or three to four lines uh, strung together that worked out pretty well, um, or character descriptions. Um, especially since it was being done so quickly, sometimes the descriptions were, were vague. It would just be like man in red was in one script on one day, and then uh, there was a woman in red in one of the scripts uh, a few days later, and it just seemed like a nice synergy as so we put those two together. And mm -hmm. then anything that we liked, uh, whether it was characters, dialogue, location, we started making a list of that, and then we put all the scripts, like absolutely everything, into one document from, you know, start to finish, not in any certain order. And then we would do that cut and paste. And uh, anything that we didn't like, we just took out. Everything else stayed. And then I took it home one night and started to put that into some sort of an order. We talked a little bit about what could this line of dialogue mean? What could this character represent? And then I made a little bit of a sequence from that, brought it back to them the next day, and we read through it, and it was... It was very incomplete, but it at least gave them a point to start talking about who are these people, what are they doing here, and these things that seem significant, what do they mean? And from there, we could start 
filling in some of the gaps as well. Still trying to avoid making it completely coherent. We didn't want something that was really concrete and made sense from beginning to end, but we wanted to make enough sense that as an audience, you wouldn't just feel like it was just nonsense on stage. It's not just gibberish. Mm -hmm. There were some threads that you were able to find and... Right. Okay, so after you've gone through this exercise, you said that they're going to be performing this in a few weeks? Yeah, uh, March 5th we're going to be performing. Well, by the time this airs, it's going to be done. <laughs> so you've missed it, everybody. Yep, sorry, people. Um, if somehow we get this out early, well, we're not going to. Yeah, I wouldn't sweat it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I don't feel like doxing you, Mike. Yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, advertising to try and get a, a large crowd in. Oh, I'm not plugging it. You're not. You're not plugging this. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to things that you can plug later uh, at the end of this segment. Um, so, okay, so they're going to be putting this on now. The when when you're looking at this and they're rehearsing, where is the surrealism coming in once they're actually doing the performance? Is it? Do you have a lot of visual stuff going on, or is it the the strange narrative that is making it feel surreal? Like. Where are your surreal qualities in the actual performance? Um, it's a little bit of both of those. So I think one of the main things that they latched onto that we've expanded a little bit, and this worked well for us just technically because we've got 14 kids that are working on it and trying to come up with 14 different roles is going to be a challenge. But we have um, about half of those kids are shadows. One of the scripts had like one or two lines that, was, that were dedicated to a shadow character. And we've expanded that out to be uh, sort of a chorus that is on stage for the majority of the performance. They exit a few times. But mm -hmm. um, the main characters that have entered this house um, sort of have to contend with the inhabitants of it. And the main inhabitants are the man in red and the woman in red, but then the shadows are sort of floating around as well. Sometimes they can interact with them, sometimes they can't interact with them. And like, I don't know why this became a thing, but sometimes they're speaking in English, sometimes they're speaking in Latin. So kind of impressed with my kids to, you know, do at least like Google Translate, if nothing else, to, to find some Latin phrases. Oh, they weren't just scream, stream of consciousness into Latin. Yeah, right. And then I think some of the interactions between the characters fit in with surrealism as well, just because a lot of it is uh, like a natural back and forth conversation between characters. But then there are some lines of dialogue where the, the conversations break a little bit and they're clearly not uh, talking with each other in the same way anymore. And there's a few mm -hmm. things, there's like some symbols that appear and disappear. There's a bird that uh, is at the door and then, turns into ash. I'm not quite sure how we're going to do that on stage yet. We'll figure something out. Uh, there's a, a baby that disappears. And that I think we do have worked out. We're just going to do blanket that is bundled up and then turns into uh, an empty blanket. And the, that'll be done with some audio cues as well. Mm -hmm. So characters and symbols, I think, are the main parts that feed into the surrealism. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, that sounds really cool. So I think that's a pretty good overview of how all of that's working. And I think at this point, maybe we should see if there's anything that stuck out to us, uh, you and me, Scott, uh, that we might be able to touch on for pulling into an RPG session, an RPG group uh, for, uh, you know, a campaign. 
Absolutely. I, I think this, this exercise is so close uh, to an RPG that it's, it's easy to draw uh, inspiration. Uh, much of the improvisational nature of, uh, of this uh, theater exercise is similar to the sort of improvisation we have in developing a story out of uh, an RPG group. Yeah, but we don't really... I guess automatism might be pretty close to improv in an RPG setting. Well, I would say we have to abstract back a little bit from it yeah. within the confines of traditional RPGs, but to have some faith in what in what seems in the short term as a random collection of individual characteristics. Say, if a person's building a character, or they're they're talking about their backstory, or or they're bringing some element of the story to the group, just allow that to spin out for a little bit and. It will, you know, and then the next person does their thing, uh, and it might not be that there's a planned connection between person one and person two, but that uh, patterns may emerge from this, uh, and you might recognize the theme of stories emerging from even relatively independently created uh, characters mm -hmm. uh, or backgrounds or things like that. So a couple of things that I, I had noticed. So. Selling strange things happening seems like it would be pretty easy to do with the backdrop of surrealism. Like, oh, there's a bird at the door and then it turns to ash. Like, okay, that's that's strange. It's fits the bill for surrealism. You know, you could take a story like this and, you know, build up shared dreams in Invisible Sun. Your characters have there there is a a realm in Invisible Sun under the blue sun where dreams are basically the reality there. So this is kind of like you wrote a play that would take place there. I mean, that's that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I think so. And I think that one of the important parts of that is to, once you do have the symbols like the, the bird that turns into ash, to have, even if it doesn't happen immediately, eventually determining some meaning behind that. I think that's what lends... Uh, the story is more of a, a surreal quality rather than just an absurdist quality. Uh, my takeaway from looking at absurdism for a little bit was really that things happen without meaning. It was sort of a response to uh, the, the madness in the world uh, around the you know early 20th century with uh, the world wars and everything. And people just mm -hmm. felt like, well, if the world around us doesn't make sense, then our, our theater isn't going to make sense either. And surrealism isn't quite like that. So having those group discussions about what is this going to mean? What does it mean now? Or what could it mean later? Yeah. Okay. And I think that kind of brings uh, surrealism into a bit more focus for me. Because <laughs> one of the things that I've been trying to figure out uh, through the course of this podcast is what is surrealism? What makes something surreal and what makes something weird? Uh, and weirdness is just, Oh, that, that thing was weird. And perhaps you can take something that is weird and make it feel surreal by finding some sort of meaning that makes it more important than it was as just a one-off. Right. So the example from earlier, I forget exactly what it was, but there was like a, a, a woman in a red dress, and there was something else that was also notably red. A man in a and, red. Yeah, a man in red and woman in red. Okay, yeah, two, so two people dressed in red. Uh, and even if they weren't intended to be connected, uh, they were... Uh, that pattern emerged out of the texts that were written. And so one thing that does fit with the tone of surrealism is that uh, the accidental combination 
of elements and the patterns that emerge from random, uh, you know, cutups or random automatic uh, writing uh, have meaning. So I think it is useful to distinguish absurdism is about nothing has meaning. You might say surrealism is about things that don't that weren't rationally planned have a deeper meaning. That's the best president for sure. And so when when you're uh, when you're kind of brainstorming or you're you know coming up with these ideas, it's about f- finding where the patterns are and then imposing meaning on them. Or you know a surrealist for, who's trying to discover the truth might say they're trying to discover the meaning in it. Uh, but for a for a game playing exercise, it might just be let's impose some meaning on this. So if two people are wearing red, there's a reason those two people are wearing red, even if there was no reason to the creation of those two elements in the story uh, when we're going back and and performing it whether you're in a game or something along those lines we will try to discover that meaning yes unconsciously it was planned they did mean to wear red at the same time they just didn't realize it because there's too much static that's in the way right right and and it's a truer form of meaning because it was not mediated by reason and conscious consciousness which is contaminated by all the things the surrealists didn't like it so as an ideolo- ideological exercise uh, it is a purer form of truth they would argue because it is a a pattern that emerges out of unconscious activity and they'll ignore the irony for the moment that it's still a conscious exercise to recognize categorize and explain that pattern <laughs> yeah what can you do you got to give them you know, points for effort though. yeah it just means you're clever enough to have spotted it after the fact right yes <laughs> another thing i noted is that uh this might make for an interesting exercise in development mode so if you have a bunch of character or a bunch of players who are you know up for doing some extra work outside of your in-person sessions. Hey, maybe, maybe you task them with like writing the next scene that they wanted to do in between sessions, you know, with this stream of consciousness, automatism, you know, technique, and then cut it up and see what you get out of it. I'm not sure how that might actually play with the rules, but hey, it might be interesting. Well, and you might be able to uh, amplify that by using this the sooth deck which is is built into the develop mode development mm-hmm. mode system so the sooth deck is going to have some sort of surreal image to it and a title and that could be uh, a prompt. I, I, and that can right or if you want to be really uh, extreme about it, you might throw uh, in in development mode have you know two or uh, or three of these and say okay we've got three vivid but random images but there but we know there's meaning here because we've decided there's meaning here mm-hmm. what is that meaning we have to discover it and then the development mode exercise is to try to figure out how the scene represents the meaning uh, in the pattern of those e- either the one surreal image or the collection of surreal images yeah we should we should write that down cuz i'm going to forget that if we don't <laughs> um. <laughs> well we, alternatively we re- could record it in some format oh man oh. can we go back in time and record it that would, that would be a good idea. Consider it done. Awesome. Well, Mike, is there anything else that you want to touch on here before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I feel like I got to describe process and impart the, the little bit of knowledge that I do have on it. Yeah, you have practical knowledge, and practical knowledge is uh, something that I really appreciate. Well, like, yeah. I don't really understand something until I actually do it. 
Yeah, I am definitely the same way. And that's, you know, that's why we teach the way we do, because uh, I think that a lot of people are that way as well. Some people do learn really well just by reading about something or hearing about it. But I think having experiential learning is much more valuable for a lot of people. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, Mike. It was great having you on. Great to be here. Uh, is there anything you want to plug? Are you on the internet anywhere where people should follow you? Or are you just an old curmudgeon who doesn't know what kids are into these days? Uh, I'm an old curmudgeon, uh, but since I'm working with the kids, I kind of know what they're into. I just don't have any of it. What yeah, are the kids into? I don't have all that much to plug. Uh, Ideas Academy in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. We're doing interesting, fun things. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Dr. Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. Uh, and if you if you like what you hear, uh, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find our show. Uh, or else, tell a friend about the show, which is another great way to get the word out and get more people listening. Mm -hmm.